Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. So much. The five women nominated for best performance by an actress in a leading role are Kathy Bates in Misery, Angelica Houston in The Grifters, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, Meryl Streep in Postcards from the Edge, Joanne Woodward in Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, and the Oscar goes to Kathy Bates in Misery. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. My name is Kyle Brownring. I'll be your host for this episode, of course. And today we're going to be talking about the 1991 Ceremony Year win for Kathy Bates for the Stephen King novel, Misery. Um, if you have listened to this podcast before, uh, we did discuss... Uh, the Best Supporting Actress win for Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, so uh, just very briefly off the topic, because I've already mentioned this in a previous episode, you know, Best Actor went to Jeremy Irons, Best Supporting Actor went to Joe Pesci, um, Best Picture went to Dances with Wolves, and Best Director went to uh, Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves. If you want to hear more about that, uh, not that we talk about it in depth, but we talk about it a little bit more, just look up for the uh, Whoopi Goldberg episode. I think it was a few episodes back. Uh, but today we are going to be focusing specifically on uh, the leading role category. Today I am joined by a friend and a co-worker. Um, they are a stand-up comedian. Uh, they are performing in Toronto. And they are also uh, the host of a podcast called Shredded, which is a post-breakup podcast, which you can find on all streaming platforms. It's Brendan D'Souza. Hi, Brendan. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, I mean, because you're also in Canada, you're also in Ontario, we're in another lockdown, anybody listening in the world uh, that is not aware of anything going on in Canada COVID-wise, we're, we're in another lockdown. So how are you, Brendan, handling this, uh, what, fourth lockdown that we've experienced in the last two years? Yeah, it's, it's odd, I've spent the past year working in a vaccine clinic, so it's oh. been kind it's kind of like on the front lines of the war and we i felt really good about it for so long and then when omicron happened and there was like we went into another lockdown it was especially crushing to be like oh okay so none of the work mattered that's cool 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 cool, cool. Yeah. right and whenever we're talking whenever you're talking about working in a vaccine clinic like what i mean like thank you for your service um but like are you administering vaccines? Um, no. So I do the operations for the clinic. I do all like the supplies and the IT and stuff. I used to be doing more admin related things, but then I get kind of mouthy. So I'm pretty sure my boss took me off customer service for that reason. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, that's the stand up comic in you. I actually got, uh, I used to work in a call center as well. And I remember there was this test center in Quebec that we used to have to escalate to that actually eventually got closed down because they were so unhelpful and <laughs> frankly, just unprofessional on so many levels. And there was one day where I just had no, I just, I was not having any of it. And I got into a fight 
And then I remember my boss was literally like, well, you're not wrong, but because you argued with this person, we can't escalate it because you were also fighting with this person. And literally I was like, that. And yeah. most times I'm like, <laughs> yeah, and worth it. I just don't have the patience or the social bandwidth anymore for people being like, actually, I really want Pfizer. I'm like, it's the same thing. Just get your fucking dose, put the needle in your arm and leave me alone. That has to be frustrating for sure. I mean, when I went to go get my third, my booster there, mm -hmm. I got it a few weeks ago at uh, St. Mike's Hospital. Yeah. And whenever I was there, it was like there was one person that refused the Moderna booster and demanded the Pfizer and was like waiting forever for it. And like everyone, like all of the health, uh, like the nurses and people that were doing the shots and stuff like that, it's like they were busy and then they all had to like stop what they were doing to go and find if, if they had any supply of Pfizer and they were like, well, we don't. Yep. And then she was like, well, you can wait for it and you can check for it and I'll, I'll wait here and you can go. And it was like, there are people that have appointments and they like, it's, it doesn't matter. Like, fuck off. But, I mean, like, I, people are more scared of like side effects than they are of like getting a virus. And this is my hot take. I think at this point in the vaccination process, your nurse should be allowed to be mean to you. I think so too. They've earned that <laughs> they right. They do a lot. Yeah, they absolutely have. Um, so talking about uh, just, just completely <laughs> transitions, uh, but talking about Kathy Bates in uh, Mystery. So why did you select this year? I'll be completely honest. I was like scrolling through the years being like, oh, what do I want to talk about? And I saw postcards from the edge and I didn't even look at the rest of the nominees for that year. I was just like, Carrie Fisher, I'm in. And I forgot that like, I've um, mixed feelings about the film postcards from the edge. And then I watched the rest of the movies and I was like, oh, this is actually like a year of gay icons. This is perfect. Yeah. Well, that's actually really funny that you say that. Okay. Well then let's just, I guess, use that as sort of a jumping off point and we'll start with postcards from the end uh, nominee Meryl Streep. So um, I think at this point in Meryl Streep's career, this would have been like her sixth or seventh nomination uh or eight you know and uh yeah. again it's like a drama role this is more of a drama d role before she started going into roles like death becomes her and more of the comedy stuff that she was because she was people in the 80s became bored of her just constantly doing these amazing dra dramatic roles i mean who would have yeah right you just become desensitized to it I guess, because... <laughs> yeah isn't that I, but isn't that such a common thing, though, with, like, consumerism, where it's, like, they just get so sick of something that's such a good quality that they're just so used to it that they just don't appreciate it anymore? I mean, they say it all the time in the music industry. If you're a female artist, you can't do what you're known for forever. People will get bored. And people yeah. want range, which I think is a huge theme in this year's Oscar nominees. Um, people just wanted something different. Like, all the categories, all the, like, the nominees for best, for lead actress are, like, they hit similar strings, but they're all just, like, executed very differently. Right. Yeah. I mean... To take it back to talk Meryl Streep. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Meryl Streep, but you're right. In the music industry, they need range. I mean, look at Katy Perry, right? Yeah. Like, she keeps releasing these really great, like, dance songs, but it's like, we've heard this from you, like, a bazillion times. But you're right. There is definitely sort of, like, a, a bias there. Maybe a double standard. Maybe it's not like that for men. Who knows? But talking about Meryl Streep and Postcards from the Edge, so this is basically the story of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to get into it too much, but basically, you know, growing up in the shadow of a huge iconic celebrity and ha and working in the entertainment industry, you're 
uh, yourself dealing with substance abuse issues. I mean, most of the people that are listening to this podcast are gay. I'm pretty sure that you're familiar with substance postcards from the edge. Oh, yeah, postcards. Yeah, that too. <laughs> both. Yeah, sure. Both. Why not? Um, so, you know, let's just talk about Meryl Streep specifically. So, um, this, of course, is uh, a very interesting um, uh, role for Meryl Streep because she is a famous person, but, you know, she never really had that controversial sort of Lindsay Lohan profile to her celebrity. Yeah. Always sort of low-key. So it is sort of interesting seeing her play this. Um, Carrie Fisher wrote the book, and it, the character, it's, it's, it's extremely similar to this role um but uh it it's 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 not like a biography of carrie fisher's life no um i mean have you read actually, either of them not that like you need to do that to watch the movie but it definitely like i hate that i'm this person specifically with carrie fisher but like reading the book definitely impacted my viewing of the movie even though no. she also wrote the movie <laughs> right but what was there like a big difference in the book compared to the movie so the book is a lot um artsier like it's told non-linear there's multiple narrators it's told in different styles like some are like uh letters some are poems some are like first person accounts and it's a lot um scrappier and the movie is a very linear these are two women who have a relationship and this is their experience in this and i found it a lot less engaging it's just the edges have kind of been sanded off which is hilarious for the subject matter um yeah and in, in the book like the mother is there for like 10 pages she's like not even a character really and i think in the movie they're like they both go to the same rehab center wow that's very interesting because so debbie reynolds uh actually wanted to play the role of doris which uh was uh, Shirley MacLaine yeah. uh, for anybody listening. It was the sort of, so Debbie Reynolds actually wanted to play the mom. But anyway, just specifically talking about Meryl Streep, I love the opening of the movie where it's sort of this misdirect where it's like she's filming a movie and then she screws up the take. And then um, it's like, it sort of becomes like, I don't know if you've ever seen the French Lieutenant's Woman, but it's like you see an actress playing an actress in a movie and then she kind of switches out of it. And then, uh, you know, um, uh, the uh, Gene Hackman is the director and then he basically acknowledges her drug habit and he threatens her. It's like, if you screw up my movie, like I will kill you. So it's a really intense opening, a really interesting opening. And it certainly had my attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's Meryl Streep. You really see her go from, she seems like she's fine to obviously she's not fine. Then she goes into uh, rehab. I will say, though, that there are a lot of moments where Meryl Streep is on, like, another level whenever she's talking to certain actors. Like, whenever she's talking to, like, Dennis Quaid, mm -hmm. there are certainly moments where you're literally like, you two are not even in the same movie. Like, yes, I get she's that. acting circles around you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, okay, you're going to hear me say this a lot in this episode. Um, okay. Just like, <laughs> she handles the tonal shifts very well. And that's a very difficult movie to land the tone on. Because mm. I just think there's like different ideas of what it should be. Like, it, it's supposed to be this like, um, not a satire, but like a send up of these like hollywood relationships and there's nothing hollywood loves more than just like sticking its head up its own ass and being like this is right. what, like any like 
Hollywood movie that's nominated for the Oscars is literally like a dog seeing a dog and being like, I understand, and then just sniffing its ass. So, right. <laughs> like, where was I going with this? About the tonal shifts. But like, it, they couldn't decide if it was supposed to be like this, like, edgy satire or if it was supposed to be like a glowing, like, oh, like a Silver City, Hollywood, all of this glitz and glam and like, oh, but the dark undertones and then like the real personal relationships underneath. And so like all the characters kind of really exist in separate movies across the board. No one, they, everyone had sort of like different ideas of what this, the tone of this movie was supposed to be. And so all the characters do sort of feel like they exist in different narratives, which I think is maybe like lingering from the source material because there are different narrators and there's different styles and all of that. But like landing that tone is very difficult. I think Meryl as like the one holding it all together does wonderfully. Um, But yeah, they're, they're all just in different movies. What's interesting because I felt like she, Meryl, was the only person that understood that it was a drama D. Yeah. Because it was like, whenever she wakes up um, in, whenever she can't wake up, she goes to the ER and then she wakes up in rehab. She's talking to the nurse and then she's literally like, you know, I don't understand how I almost died. She starts laughing and then she immediately starts crying. So it's like this like moment where she's like trying to be like, oh my God, can you believe that? And then she's literally like, oh my God, I am fucked. And it just is this self-realization moment, but it's also like kind of funny at the same time a little bit. Yeah. And I, that's what I mean where it's like Meryl Streep. Um, I remember I had a guest, uh, Bill Antonio, he said it so beautifully. He said that Meryl Streep always knows what movie she's in. Oh yes. Very bad. And it's so, it's so true because it's like she understands and she plays to it so, so well. I mean, listen, I'll be honest with you. This isn't one of my favorite, favorite Meryl Streep performances. However, this is one of my Meryl Streep, one of my favorite Meryl Streep movies. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's a very gay man friendly movie. Okay, very (laughs) that. It's literally, yeah, it's gay heaven. Um, I will agree with you to a point because like, I think she does Meryl very well in this. I just don't think this is a Meryl role. For an actress that's like known for Mm -hmm. like chameleoning her way through her career, I don't think that she like works she's not a suzanne bale to me i understand what you're saying because it's not that she was miscast but it's almost like she's on another level mm-hmm. where it's like they're bringing in shirley mclean maybe trying to do like a bit of a terms of endearment moment with i don't really know like because it's like you know she's known for being like the complicated mother character mm-hmm. and she won an oscar for it so you're like oh yeah bring in shirley mclean and i'm i feel like maybe they were just because it maybe felt familiar to audiences that that's why they put her in there. But it was like Shirley MacLaine with Meryl Streep. It didn't feel like Shirley MacLaine was Meryl Streep's mom. It felt like she was her, like Meryl Streep was like Shirley MacLaine's like younger sibling. Like when she, when um, Shirley picks her up from rehab for the first time and she goes, hi mama. I was like, oh, you've met for the first time today. Yes, absolutely. They do get like, better like when they like drop the pretense and they start like taking snipes at each other you're like okay there's a relationship there but again like the maternal complicated dynamic with like the i'm like i don't know if you're really landing this the way you think you are i i agree with you i think that like just in terms of a performance i mean it's meryl streep of course she's you know on like another level but i certainly would agree with you where it's like it's not that she was necessarily miscast it's just that i don't know if she was like the perfect fit for this because um 
like again like to say what you were talking about before like with Dennis Quaid and stuff like that it's like yeah it's like everybody kind of was like coming to the table with their own sort of idea of how the character should be but they all didn't kind of fit together nicely like a piece like pieces of a puzzle it it all kind of seemed like different parts that maybe didn't fit together as well as they should have um and uh you know Shirley MacLaine's performance I actually wouldn't have been surprised if she would have been nominated for a supporting role if you listen to the Whoopi Goldberg episode listeners uh you know I would have swapped out Diane Ladd for uh, Shirley MacLaine in this category, but you know, that's just me. Um, you know, I, I yeah. think that, uh, well, also Annette Benning is in this movie as Dennis Quaid. Uh, he's cause Dennis Quaid is hooking up with Annette Benning in this movie mm-hmm. and she disguises herself so well um, in this role as well. I, it took me a second to realize that it was her. Which is ironic because she, she was, was also nominated for supporting this year as well. For the grifters. Yeah. For specifically being a chameleon who could be anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the only moment where Meryl Streep's character was equally like on the same level with their scene partner was kind of near the end whenever she's talking. She's in that recording studio with Gene Hackman. She's clean and sober now and she has to like reshoot a scene like just the audio track for it. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of back and forth and he's kind of being a bit of a father figure to her because clearly she didn't really have one mm-hmm. um and their relationship it was brief but layered and i really genuinely felt like the whole movie <laughs> nobody could really like hold a candle to meryl streep except for gene hackman and that was the only time that i was like oh this is a nice scene where the rest of it it just yeah it really just sort of felt like everybody else was kind of just doing their own thing the thought i'm coming to you right now is with the exception of Shirley mcclain do you think that's intentional just to like drive home that paternal aspect that's like the mirror of the Shirley mcclain arc I feel like that would be giving the director a lot of credit. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but I'm sure it's in a realm of possibility, sure. <laughs> um, Just purposely miscasting the rest of the movie to land this one scene in a recording booth. I think that's Shirley MacLaine's best scene, though, where it was like, wow. But again, it just had like moments of um, uh, terms of endearment, except for it's like she's Deborah Winger in this moment, mm-hmm. was the scene where Shirley MacLaine is in the hospital for drunk driving. Mm-hmm. And you see her without her wig and she's bald. And then she has to do like um, damage control because the media is there and she knows how to handle it perfectly. And it's like Meryl Streep's, she's just like, oh yeah, like we're used to this. This is something that we're actually good at is doing damage control. That actually felt the most Debbie Reynolds to me. I know we're not talking about Meryl Streep at all in this movie. And honestly, I feel like that's appropriate (laughs) because I'm not the biggest fan of Meryl in this movie. Love Meryl in this movie. Don't love Meryl in this movie. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, she, um, I understand what you're saying. I think that uh, when she, okay, if you've ever seen the movie um, adaptation, it's like her drug habits and drug use Mm -hmm. in that is way more interesting. See, this is the problem with Meryl. It's like you have so many other, because she has such range, you have so many other ways to compare it to that you can compare it to other movies where she, you know, is addicted to, to drugs or alcohol, like in the movie Ironweed or in Adaptation, for example. And it's like, you can kind of be like, mm, I think you were a little bit more interesting and believable in that than mm-hmm. compared to this. And I think that that's unfair for the other nominees because they don't have that body of work or that range to compare it to. Because again, she's just on another level. So I know what you mean where it's like, you you don't love her in this movie, but you love her in this movie, but you don't love her. I know what what you're saying. Also, I will say that I think as far as her performance goes 
in terms of like landing this like caustic drug uh like recovering drug addict uh who's like jaded to the world and hollywood at this point i honestly think the hair and the cigarettes did a lot of the heavy lifting in the performance department oh 100 percent. yeah um absolutely <laughs> like i do i do i do want to say though whenever they're talking about like you know her losing weight and her um you know like all the people all the casting crew are like talking about her and just ob- objectifying mm-hmm. her you know that like that that's still this whether it was like a star or not it's like that is how people on set talk on like tv and movie sets like a big reason why i gave up um going on auditions and having an acting agent and stuff like mm-hmm. that was i genuinely could not handle uh, the way that casting directors and casting people tell you as a gay person how a gay person is supposed to be. Oh, very that, very that. Yeah. I couldn't handle it. I was like, oh my God, like you're all straight, like fucking white people, like fuck off. Like mm-hmm. it's like, don't tell me how to be gay or what a gay person is supposed because it's like they see it in such a limited view. And so it's like when I saw her listening to it's like I'm sure audiences are like, oh that's so awful. It's like, no, that that is just as bad today as it was like 20, 30 years ago, whether people want to admit that or yeah, not. Yeah, that's a Tuesday hung. Yeah, exactly. Um okay, so yeah, did we specifically talk a lot about Meryl Streep's performance in this movie? <laughs> Maybe not. We mostly just talked about our feelings towards her and this movie. <laughs> okay. But listen, we've all seen, we all like it's, I highly recommend watching it. It's, I do agree with you. The wigs and the cigarettes did a lot of the heavy <laughs> lifting. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend watching it. I, I, I've seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but um, it's, Com- compared to other things that Meryl Streep has done, I-, I would say that this it's not a forgettable performance, but it's maybe not one of her more memorable ones. No, it's memorable for the accolades it got, but that's pretty much it. So you always there, remember there, your ninth Oscar nominee. Yeah, so it was nine. Okay, there you go. Um, so a couple quotes that I like from this movie. Uh, uh, it was from Shirley MacLaine. She said, "I don't mind getting older, but I do mind looking old." Mm-hmm. That I love. Um, Spoke and, to me. Uh, yep. Uh, Meryl Streep says, I can't feel my life. It's happening all around me and I can't feel it. That one I understood a lot because, um, uh, hi, Brendan, uh, we haven't spoken in a while, but <laughs> I actually quit drinking. I'm in therapy. I'm like getting my shit together. Oh my God, Kyle! Um, I know. So I don't this, mean to sound that... condescending, but I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I know. I'm proud of me too. And uh, I also love whenever she was at the rehab center and she said to the nurse that was trying to say all these inspirational things and Meryl says, do you only talk in bumper stickers? Mm. Yep. I love that. Love that. Brilliant. Love that. Um, okay. Do you have anything else that you would like to add or anything that you would like to add to Meryl Streep's performance before we move on? Um, I think I want to go back to what you said about the, the casting director scene, just because, you know, Meryl Streep is known for like stretching herself beyond logical reason for a role but like that i feel like is probably like the closest to like a human moment that she would have played in her career and that's probably like oh it helps in making it so affecting because like again like a titan of american cinema is still subject to the same oh uh, aren't you getting like a little flabby to play a 20 year old like right yeah yeah No, you're, you're, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. But Meryl, for a lot of her career, like, 
um she used a lot of body doubles because she was just like oh my god i don't fucking care yeah like <laughs> in bridges of madison county there's like a nude scene and it's a it's a body double oh my god good for um her. yeah <laughs> so okay let us talk about angelica houston and the grifters now for anybody listening if you have uh already listened to the Whoopi goldberg episode um, I will be kind of repeating myself a little bit here about Angelica Houston in this movie. I didn't think that I would be talking about this performance so soon. Um, so if you want, you could probably skip through this, but if you want to hear, uh, Brendan's take, then please stick around. But I will just say that, um, yeah, the grifters, it's a story about con artists and how everything goes wrong. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm not really going to be repeating a lot of the facts from this movie, uh, that I've already previously stated, like, a few episodes ago, uh, other than John Cusack was literally shopping the rights to this movie when he was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really the only interesting one. Uh, that and also Angelica Houston said that this is, of all of her roles, this was the most challenging one. Cher and Gina Davis both turned down the role of Lily, which is the character that Angelica Houston plays in The Grifters, and, uh, Lily Tomlin was also considered for the lead role um have you have you seen this movie before brendan and what did you think it's about it? literally been on my list for years i've i love i'm so gay for a con movie and so i was so yes. excited to like finally get around to this and then i watched it and i kind of went oh because i don't know if it's just like it's <laughs> too smart for me but i was like i don't really get the cons and like the tagline of the movie is who's conning who and i was like i at the end of this, i still couldn't tell you like everyone's dead well so basically it's like john cusack is the short con man Mm -hmm. and then uh annette benning is supposed to be like oh let's do a long con and then john is like to the audience being like you know long cons never work but then angelica houston is doing a long con to that mob boss yeah so it's like and then everything obviously blows up in her face um what i liked about the movie um and uh you know here we have like a 30 one-year-old spoiler for anybody that doesn't know but in the end john cusack accidentally gets killed and it's a very unsatisfactory ending yeah and i like but i like that though like it's a frustrating it's a frustrating ending but anyway so angelica houston and her wig in this movie and her wig talk about her her wig wig. that's literally the first note i wrote down is just angelica houston wig well, if you actually look up the telecast for the Oscar ceremony, you will notice that Julia Roberts, nominated for Pretty Woman, has basically taken the wig from Angelica <laughs> Houston in the Grifters and is wearing it at the ceremony, I swear to God. Oh my God. So maybe this was just super hot in like 1990 when this was filmed, and maybe this was just the look. But yeah, that wig was like half of the movie. Absolutely. For me. Um angelica houston okay so she's the mom to john cusack Mm -hmm. and uh the first thing that i wrote down in my notebook was the hair color is an assault so we've established this (laughs) um she's the one who's scamming the boss uh mob boss person and um i always uh found her resentment in the movie toward annette benning a bit jarring odd because it's like is it a competition is it because she's a woman is it because she's a bad influence on her son yeah that was not really communicated at all and i think that's my main problem with like the arc of it is like i went into this being like oh it's gonna be like the three of them conning each other and then they have one scene at the beginning and then they're trying to kill each other and it really has no build other than the fact that they like angelica houston could die 
they both need mm-hmm. money. John Cusack is there exploring his Oedipal complex, which love that for him. It's gonna get him killed, and mm-hmm. nothing else really happens. Yeah, there's not really like a whole lot. I mean, this movie for me personally, it's like I always love watching Angelica Houston be sort of like a bad a bad guy, a villain. Like she's so good at mm-hmm. that. But it's like I've just seen her do it so much better, like in other movies in a different way, and. I feel like in uh, this particular role, for me, it was Annette Benning that was the movie, and she was kind of the scene stealer for me. Absolutely. Um, and I think that uh, the best scene was when you see uh, Angelica Houston's vulnerability whenever the mob boss is onto her, and then he basically is like, I will kill you. And you see her, she is stuttering because she can't say the words because she's scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, he puts out a lit cigar on her hand uh and you just see how scared she is because throughout the whole movie she is kind of like you know balls of steel Mm -hmm. until that moment yeah and i feel like without that moment of vulnerability almost like when you see miranda Priestley in the devil wears prada where she's without makeup and crying there's not really a range to the character it's often very one note so i feel like perhaps that nomination for this role specifically was heavily reliant on that one scene I agree. And again, I'm going to bring up tonal shifts. Uh, like it's the, the the vulnerability there, the vulnerability like at the end where she like gets caught when she's taking the money and she's like begging like she's this. I think for her, the entire movie is about control. And we see her controlling like when she has control, she's just like, oh, she talks like this. She doesn't care at all, but she could kill you. And then like when she loses it, it's like just so much more painful almost to watch like that was an uncomfortable scene with the oranges i was like i don't know how to like process this how to i don't know where this is gonna go i love any time in a movie i like sit there and i'm like this could literally go anywhere and the movie would be better for it it's yeah i love that you said i don't know how to process this because i know what you mean there was this moment where it's like she kind of seems like you know the 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 boss bitch the badass kind of character and then when you see her like the st- st- stuttering and she is in this extremely vulnerable moment i know what you mean by you don't know how to process it because it's like you're like uh like you're suddenly so weak and vulnerable mm-hmm. and scared and scared and shaking like a leaf and it's weird because it's like you don't think of her like that and i know it it's it's it it is really jarring yeah um and i think that again like that's sort of what lends to the performance and probably the nomination overall because you do see that extreme uh rage um i think though uh there are a lot of really uncomfortable scenes i mean that's the point of the movie like whenever she's making it with her son that i didn't really understand it's like they had a physical and romantic relationship because she was only 15 years older than him. Like, I didn't really know what was going on there, but, like, that was... I could have done without that. Well, the whole thing um, there is, like, about... Like, how do I say... Like, I hate to keep saying Oedipal Complex, but there's a reason that, like, she and Annette Benning's characters are the same age and they look the same, not just for the plot, but also to, like, explore John Cusack's, like, attachment to Angelica Houston. And, like, the the scene where uh, Annette Benning accuses him of, like, wanting to fuck his mom is, like, played for laughs while also, like, played for, like, dramatic stakes. But that, I think, is the core of his character. 
I mm-hmm. okay. Here's my problem with the movie, and I know I've said this before, and I will say it several times: is I just don't know until the la- until the last scene. I did not know who the movie was about. Right. If she was supporting in this, I'd be like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, I guess the whole story kind of does revolve around John Cusack's character, but like, I don't know. Like, I this movie was a bit of a letdown for me as well mm-hmm. um, because it's not what I was expecting. And uh, you see Angelica Houston, you see Annette Bening, you're like, oh, this is going to be really good. And then when you watch it, it's kind of like, oh, that was not what I thought it was going to be. I mean, personally for me, I think that Annette Bening is the star of this movie. Absolutely. Um, but Angelica Houston, it's always nice seeing her uh, be that sort of villainess, strong con woman. Like it's, it's, it's clearly in her wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of it's, it's just like small little moments. Like, you know, whenever she's running away from, murder she accidentally kills her son but at the end of the day she is uh you know staying true to her character she takes the money and she runs away and it's just she's perpetuating this this life that she has for herself because she's like i've never had a real job before and i never will and you know things like that so it's like she's a very she's an interesting character i don't know okay I, i think in terms of the writing for the movie Annette Benning is the more compelling character. Angelica Houston is a more compelling actress. Interesting. Okay, can you expand on that? Just like Annette Benning's arc makes so much more sense to me, whereas you kind of spend the whole movie like watching Angelica Houston react to things and then not really doing anything, and then she just takes off at the end. And she makes fascinating choices. She's endlessly interesting to watch, like the way, like mm-hmm. watching her at the racetrack versus watching her with. Roy versus watching her like like her dynamics with everyone are like very interesting but they kind of exist in vacuums for me in the movie mm-hmm. whereas like Annette Benning, like through and through like she uses her body to get what she wants she's always playing the game she's got a long con going at all times she's like spinning the wheels she's like uh, ratting people out she's betraying people she's stabbing you in the back she's like manipulating people and then she gets in overhead and flies too close to the sun. Like it's a much more engaging arc to me. And in that Benning and Angelica Houston's arc, I feel a sacrifice for John Cusack and Annette Bennings. She still gets the Oscar nomination because she held her own amidst all of that. And was still like, you couldn't take her eyes off her when she walks on screen. But I just feel like from a writing standpoint, she was underserved. Yeah. I mean, I suppose so. And you're right because, um, like the fact that Angelica Houston is the lead nominee, nominee, and then you know Annette Bening is the supporting. You're right. You would think that there would be more to Angelica Houston. I mean, listen, I have like literally talked about this this movie and this performance already, so I don't really have much else to add. Um, is there anything else that like you specifically want to talk about before we move on to the next nominee? Uh, three things. Uh, not specifically for this movie, but Angelica Houston should win an Oscar every time she smokes a cigarette. I know, yeah. Um, yeah. If you're going to give Angelica Houston an Oscar nomination for around this point in her career, the Addams Family was right around the corner and she was robbed. Yeah, she was, um, yeah. For a nomination, at least. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And just... I didn't realize that this was such an iconic line until I saw it. And I literally gasped and she just like goes, you haven't got the stomach for it. 
Zack. Oh, yeah. bitch. Oh, bitch. <laughs> I, uh, I think I wrote that line down, too. I, I said, uh, yeah, I did, in quotes. Get off the grift, Roy. You haven't got the stomach for it. Yeah, just a sucker punch on top of a sucker punch. That was one of that was my favorite line too. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. So, um, I have to say, uh, right off the top, um, so basically, you know, this is a uh, classic sort of Cinderella story mm-hmm. about uh, a, a hooker, and this was <laughs> this was this was originally a movie that was supposed to be called 3000. Um, if you want to watch more about it, watch the movies that made us the episode about pretty woman. It's very, very interesting because there are so many rumors in Hollywood of how the movie had originally ended. Like she, did she OD or did they not get back together? The original ending was actually, uh, they don't get together and then they get on a bus to go to Disneyland together. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the original ending. Uh, I also think there was an ending where Tess had HIV and anyway, we're not going to get too much into that. Do watch on Netflix, the movie that movies that made us and it's, it's pretty woman. That that episode is very interesting. Um, I'm just going to say like right off the top, a bunch of, uh, cause we all know what this movie is about. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say off the top, like a bunch of facts and then we'll get into Julia Roberts. So um, the scene where the next, the necklace box snaps shut, that was improvised um and the director thought it was so cute that he decided to keep it hmm. uh the scene where she's in the tub and there's all those bubbles it was actually um detergent for oh uh like God. a washing machine and that way it made really thick bubbles but the problem was that it rinsed off all of the red hair dye out of her hair oh my god it's That's so, there's so one... funny yeah so in the movie if you notice there's a bit of red dye on her forehead Oh, yeah. Um, So the movie was originally called 3000 because that's how much he was going to pay her. But people felt that it sounded like a sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. Yep. But the most interesting fact that I thought was because I've always heard that Molly Ringwald was originally offered the title role. And I was uh, and then she she had regretted not taking it because, of course, this is like a classic. And um, the reason why she didn't take it was because she was very uncomfortable with the subject matter. And what I find so interesting about that is that in 2011, it was actually debunked. It is a myth. She was never offered the role, um, which I was always like, ah, oh, because I always thought that was the most interesting thing about her. Like, oh, her career could have like skyrocketed because it's Molly Ringwald from the 80s. And then it didn't because she didn't take Pretty Woman. But anyway, <laughs> uh it turns out that it wasn't true. She literally said, she's like, I never saw this script or I don't remember seeing the script. I don't remember being offered this role. And she's like, also, I genuinely feel that Julia Roberts was the best pick for this because nobody else could have done uh, what she did with it and the way that she chose to do Absolutely it. Absolutely not. Yeah, 100%. I um, will say that this is oh. probably the movie that I have like the least amount of opinions on just because I think as far as like performance goes, this is just 100,000% just Julia Roberts charisma through and through. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. Like there's nothing I can say about it. It's just like, Oh you, you, yeah. I will watch your star quality on screen for two hours. 100%. Oh, hundred percent. Um, so, okay. Burt Reynolds was originally offered the role of Edward. Um, and Diane Lane was very close to playing Vivian, uh, but she couldn't do it because of scheduling conflicts. Uh, and yeah, in the original ending, they didn't end up together and they got on a bus to Disneyland. Um, so uh, in this 
uh, movie with Julie Roberts, you know, you basically just said it. It's like two hours of Julie Roberts charisma. Mm-hmm. At this point, she had been nominated for Steel Magnolias, but she never really had that big Julia Roberts moment that made her the highest paid actress, you know, through the 90s. She was the highest paid actress, um, I think, until Cameron Diaz took that crown in the mid-2000s. But Whoa. anyway, Julia Roberts is the ultimate Julia Roberts in this movie and you know to be honest with you i always kind of thought of this movie as kind of like a chick flick uh if you will and i always just kind of thought i never really thought of it as like an oscar type of movie yeah I can but, when see you that. Watch it, but when you watch it back objectively for a podcast about the oscars <laughs> and then you com- right and then you compare it to the other nominees such as angelica houston for example you can actually see that no she had quite a bit of range in this movie and it's easy to forget uh, or it's easy to kind of write it off as being like, oh, it's just a Julia Roberts movie. But it's like, no, no, no. Up until this point, there were no Julia Roberts movies. Oh, very bad. This was yeah. Like, yeah, like it was a game changer for her, but also for the way that like rom-coms were done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, of course, uh, Julia Roberts, I think she was mostly known for Mystic Pizza, Mystic Pizza and uh, Steel Magnolias at this point. Um my only criticism of this movie, because I love this movie, I love Julia Roberts, is she is too pretty. Okay, listen. It's in the honey, title, I, Kyle. I know, but honey, I live <laughs> down the street. I live down the street from the famous Hooker Harveys. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, so I live in the gay village in Toronto. Anybody listening in Canada and Toronto, there's a place called Allen Gardens. This is where the hookers and the pimps go to you know, advertise, let's say. And uh, the Harvey's across the street is famously known as Hooker Harvey's. Mm-hmm. And across from that is a, uh, is a is a hotel, a motel, if you will, where they rent by the hour. Wink, wink. So I am very familiar of what a hooker looks like. They glammed it up <laughs> so much to the point where... Never once do I believe that she could ever, in any reality, in any capacity, even in a movie, be a hooker. Okay, interesting. When you say it I, like that, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> like, you I had believe, options, girl. Yeah, like, I, I believe that she is a hooker because the movie is telling me she's a hooker. Mm-hmm. I believe her performance whenever she's crying and she's talking about, like, how she feels the way that she's treated. And I believe whenever she's, I'm just very aware that I'm watching an actress play a hooker because I know what a hooker looks like. And it's nowhere near that. Oh my God. Okay. So that's all. the only thing that I would say that was very hooker like to me is when she has those hooker boots that go like halfway up her thigh. Yeah. And in the very beginning, this is a very subtle thing, whenever she is taking a black marker and she's uh, coloring in black on the ripped up, like, faux leather shoe. Mm -hmm. That was probably the most believable hooker thing that I could see in the movie. Because the moment after the night after when they meet and she takes off that blonde bob and then she has this, like, very matronly, beautiful, movie-brave red curly hair it just becomes a different movie yeah very that it just becomes it just becomes like a oh julia roberts oh i just met her at this very gorgeous classy nightclub it's like i don't believe for a second that this gorgeous model woman 
clearly a movie star would be a hooker. She's way too good looking and way too smart. Like, yeah, no see, offense. this is what I mean. It's like, it's not even like, arguably not a movie about a hooker. Because like, she's supposed to be, yeah. she could be like literally any scrappy rough around the edges girl who like meets a man at a hotel and you know like it, obviously like there is a transaction that needs to happen in order for the movie to have a plot but yeah it happens and then she just walks around um what's the word i'm looking for hollywood boulevard uh yes hollywood, uh deadpanning for the whole movie well, it's interesting because the original script was a lot darker. You had yes. themes of substance abuse. You had Sexual um, HIV, assault. which yeah, <laughs> HIV, which was very hot back in the mm-hmm. day, and uh, you know, a lot of my believability of her being a hooker was mostly dependent on her clothes. So when she goes into the classy restaurant or the restaurant, the classy hotel, you know, the Ritz. And the juxtaposition of her appearance to the classiness of the environment really is like, oh, wow, because it makes you uncomfortable as a viewer because you're like, wow, you do not fit in there and everyone's staring at you. Uh, Or at least that's how I felt watching it. And that for me was the most believable hooker moment. But is that the performance or is that the clothes? I think that's the clothes. And I also like, number one, like a Canadian hooker is very different than an LA hooker. But like how prevalent was like the hooker archetype? in the 90s or like the late 80s that like you could just like drop this woman there and i mean like i know we're coming out of the 80s and you know it's gritty and all that and cocaine so yes but still no no no. so i have i have i have discussed this so many times on this podcast because if you you don't even really need to go that far back probably just like earlier than like let's say 2000 the roles for women in film were very limited and they are kind of still, it's getting better. But before the two thousands, it was like, you were either a mother, you were a wife, Mm -hmm. you were a mistress or you were a hooker or you were a hooker who was a mother (laughs) or you were a mother who was a mistress. Like it was like, that was the only really like, those were the really the only roles for women. That's why Jodie Foster or even Kathy Bates winning an Oscar for playing like a villain. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, oh, that's different. And it's interesting where you have uh, Julia Roberts playing a hooker. I mean, she played it iconically mm-hmm. and she plays it in a way that Julia Roberts is going to play it. And again, up until in cinema history, there, there was no Julia Roberts standard. So of course this was groundbreaking and very interesting to watch. But of course, this movie got such a Hollywood treatment of very dark subject matter. Yeah. And if we're just talking about Julia Roberts's performance, you can't really blame her for that. So overall, I have to say that, of course, because we're still talking about this movie, whether it's this podcast or not, because it's such a famous movie, she knocked it out of the park and she was the right choice for the role. Wahundo P. And like, I love just how many urban legends there are, but like this person was considered because like it's outlandish that that person would ever have been considered in hindsight. I think the thing that got a little exhausting for me, though, was the way how, like, in one scene, she was so sexually confident and very, like, um, you know, in control of the moment and all of her johns and her dates. But then when she wakes up, she sort of, like, maintains this naive innocence to her where she's, like, eating her food and she's talking about, like, wow, your folks must be so proud that you finished college i only and then she turns into this like scrappy almost childlike person where like a second ago she was this extremely in control confident 
I don't know. Like, I guess I suppose that would be range, but it just almost seemed like I was watching two different characters. I see that again. I'm going to come back to tonal shifts. I think she navigates them quite well. I think that that 100% is the script. Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. those two versions of the character really do exist in the same person in the real world. But for the sake of the movie that you're watching, where a hooker could fall in love with Richard Gere or Richard Gere could fall in love with a hooker, there is like a certain suspension of disbelief that you have to allow. Yeah, but I mean, the timeline for this movie is what, like a week? Yeah. And whenever she becomes so terribly offended at the polo match, for example, that she was being treated like a hooker, it I realize it's for the story, but you're literally like, no, mm-hmm. like... It's been 24 hours, babe. Like, you aren't in this life now. There there are things that are just kind of annoying to watch. The believability is a little frustrating. I mean, of course, this is a product of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more adult scenes than I remember. I haven't seen this movie since I was, like, I don't know, 20. But, like, I just haven't... I'm 32, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I literally... You know, 12 years. Yeah. But I, I never really noticed, like, this sounds, this is probably the stupidest point, but, like, I never realized how sexual it was and how she actually really went there. Yeah. And so, I mean, she didn't go there in the sense that Annette Benning and the Grifters went there, but, like, comparably. And also, of course, I'm sure this movie probably had, I don't know what the rating was for this movie. It was R, wasn't it? Let's, uh, I'm, I'm assuming Just for a subject matter. Yeah, probably. But it's also, like, it just... It just, we're so desensitized to that stuff now that, or maybe I was so desensitized to it back then that I didn't notice, but this movie is actually, uh, yeah, there are a lot of, like, really intense, like, adult scenes, like, whenever she goes down on him, mm-hmm. or whenever, like, he comes home and she's completely naked wearing the tie that she got for him. Yeah. I, I never really noticed those scenes before, maybe because I'm gay. I don't know. Yeah, that was I not the focal point for you, my love. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, of course, the famous line, you work on commission, right? Big mistake. <laughs> Huge. I have to go shopping now. You know, iconic. Brilliant. Love it. We all have to quote it at some point. Um, I think it's Julia Roberts. I love her in this movie. I'll watch it again. She went there. I think that it could have, it would have been more interesting if it was a darker movie, but like, obviously that was not the tone. Yeah. And I think that this is one of her best. And uh, Absolutely. It. Iconic for a reason. I, I, love any movie that explores class especially the way this one does um as someone who also sometimes gets stare- stared at when they walk into high-end establishments i was like i see you girl so <laughs> go off yeah as comedians we're trash absolutely 100%. yeah uh, oh the only thing that i didn't buy was the fact that she wouldn't accept his offer to be taken care of um, whenever he's like, I'll pay for your apartment and like give you an allowance. Yeah, that okay. To go go back to the suspension of disbelief, a lot of these things about like her like these two characters don't exist in the same world. They're written to give her a sense of agency, but like mm-hmm. a better script would have found a more organic way to do that. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, it's uh, like uh, probably it's like it goes like Aaron Brockovich number one, and then this right. So it's like this is. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's it's iconic. It's okay. a for me. Do you have anything else that you would like to add to her performance before we move no. on? No. Uh, did I cover the class thing already? Uh, or did we cover the, No, I don't think that you covered the class thing. Okay, so just like, as someone who like, also gets stared at sometimes when I enter high-end establishments, I really respect this film's, or really any movie's, exploration of class. And also like, she says the things in those stories that I wish that I could say, but I just don't get away with it. And I'm always a fan of that. 
All right. That's great. I love it. Um, and I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, um, okay. So let us talk about, oh, Jesus, this one. I, okay. I almost I, quit the podcast for this one. I literally, me too, babe. Um, let us talk about Joanne Woodward and Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. So for anybody um, that has uh, never seen uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, it is a two hour nap uh, about literally nothing. Mm-hmm. And basically uh, it, it uh, stars Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, an actual married couple in real life. And in this movie, it takes place around the second world war and it represents, um, you know, this super privileged, white, rich country club family that is kind of uh, the younger generation of kids. They're like, you know, not marrying wealth. They're having more modern values. Um, their kid wants to go off to war. Uh, you know, uh, Mary, uh, what was it? The woman, she was like Latina and that was like, whoa. So it's like the whole point is the whole movie is basically people coming to Paul Newman with more modern ideas for the 30s and him just not being okay with mm-hmm. it for two hours two whole hours they literally <laughs> start the movie or sorry end the movie where they started and i i i just i i'm i'm still mad about it i'm sorry like i know i was half paying attention i had one eye closed the whole fucking movie it's like so you have um you know it opens on a rich family uh, you see Gwyneth Paltrow's mom, which is an immediate yikes for me because she is the definition of like Connecticut woman. And you're like, okay, like, what is this going to be about? You know, there's lots of cheese from Vermont. Everybody's very upper class. Everyone's like, do you ski? <laughs> so it's like, you're kind of like, okay, so where is this going to go? Is it like, oh, they're going to lose their money or like, oh, like the wars? Because you yeah, the, you'd expect at, that. At one, well, at one point they're literally in Paris and then they're like, oh, Germany has invaded uh, Poland and then they're like oh my god we're in Europe and oh my god the Nazis have invaded Poland so you're like okay here we go something's gonna happen they're gonna be stuck in Europe there's gonna be a war thing nope the next scene they just go right back to Missouri mm-hmm. and they're literally just hanging out in a stuffy billiard room having cigars and brandy and you're like what the fuck is this movie about i don't know if it was supposed to be like a look into the lives of a conservative family and what time was like during that time okay if that was the point then make it way more interesting like it was so fucking boring nothing happened it didn't go anywhere and joanne woodward the whole time was just sort of this like agreeable no worries going along with it complacent person because I think that there's supposed to be like, well, for the time as the matriarch. Mm-hmm. Okay, for the time, the matriarch of the family, women and men, especially parents, especially rich high society parents, were extremely conservative and extremely strict. I do not believe, it, like her performance, it was like I was watching a mother, I was like watching, uh, you know, uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara in like Home Alone. Yeah. That's how she felt. It was like, you are not in the right time period. The way that you're reacting to everything is way too chill. I, 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 anyway. There's so much, like, inconsistent with the time that just, like, kept pulling me out. Like, of a movie that I was struggling to be in, kept pulling me out. Like, the score was so contemporary. Like, the majority of the performances were contemporary, with the exception of Paul Newman, who, for what he was doing, brava. But, like, I just 
it's like the movie was actively encouraging me to disengage. I know. They even, at the very beginning, Joanne Woodward literally says that she feels extremely low on her husband's priority list, so she wants a divorce. So you're like, okay, now we're having a divorce during the 1930s when it was extremely gauche to have a divorce. And then that doesn't even happen. Nope. It is so boring and frustrating and nothing interesting happens maybe if you're from this time period like maybe it was interesting so for example if you've ever seen the movie american graffiti that's very nostalgic to people who grew up in the 50s okay i literally wrote in my book this is stranger things for baby boomers exactly it's literally like this thing where it's like oh this is nostalgic this is interesting but if you're not from that time it's so fucking boring Mm -hmm. to watch i mean Okay, so previously, whenever we talked about um, the episode, uh, I, um, I t- uh, the Tatum O'Neill episode when she won for Paper Moon, uh, we talked about uh, the movie Summer Wishes and Winter Dreams, which Joanne Woodward was nominated for a leading role. So I have seen a few movies that she has uh, been in, and uh, she was way more interesting in Summer Wishes and Winter Dreams. I understood the um, nomination for that film. This, it almost felt like they couldn't find a fifth nominee. So they just gave it to her because they were like, well, sure. Like, you know, because again, roles for women at this time, Mm -hmm. there weren't many that were great. And they were probably like, ah, good enough. But in the telecast for the um, Oscar ceremony, she's not even at the ceremony. She probably was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to win. You know what I mean? Like, come on. This, I do not, anybody listening to the movie, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, I do not recommend. I will say that, like, this is a thought that I had. I was, because I knew I was watching it for her performance, because I knew I did, I would never watch this recreationally. Like, the the tagline of the movie is literally, like, one unforgettable family or something. And I was like, I couldn't tell you a single one of their names. So, (laughs) but it's so boring that I was literally looking for anything to hold my interest. And that is why I just, like, gravitated to her performance and i really 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 appreciate the subtlety in her performance so i do have thoughts on that i understand how she got a nomination i just don't understand how or why this movie was ever on anyone's watch list well talking about the subtlety of the performance that is something that the academy doesn't really reward that often except for maybe in more of a supporting role Mm -hmm. i think for a lead nomination of the subtlety of the perform because listen of course it's a good performance like that she's doing what the director wanted and she's clearly a gifted actor but to be nominated for an oscar for that i think that's a bit of a stretch the only real acting that i thought was maybe not subtle was whenever her friend grace died because she took too many sleeping pills and then you thought okay well we have war we have divorce we have themes of divorce or or, uh, of, of suicide sorry substance abuse and none of it they didn't get into any of it and then at one point remember whenever they're like at that boy scout ceremony and then they're singing she's singing the national anthem and then she stops singing the national anthem and she begins to cry bitch i started crying too because there was still half an hour left i was like this movie is unbearable and i'm sorry but it should not be rewarded with a with a nomination or if you're gonna nominate someone in this movie blaze fucking danner is the only yeah. watchable part of this two-hour turd, like, like electric performance. Maybe in comparison, because everyone else is literally die- dead on screen. But, like, Blythe Danner was, she showed up, and I was like, ah, a life vest. Everything else, I was like, why? Just, and, but that, again, Blythe Danner just felt completely 
out of time with the movie. Like, I could not fathom that this woman existed in this society and was this other woman's best friend who would, like, generate this much emotion upon her death. I mean, when she was drunk, like, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, was the way she, just the way she, like, leans back on the chair when she's playing bridge, I was like, why isn't there more of that in this? <laughs> anyway, I genuinely don't really have much to say. I mean, Joanne Woodward, congrats on the nomination, but the nomination is the win, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, for anybody, Kira Sedgwick from The Closer is the daughter in this movie. I thought that was, I think that was the most interesting part of <laughs> for Oh, her. yeah, she was. Yeah. There you she go. gets like um, caught by her dad having sex and like the next scene she's like completely dressed up and at this like high-end club and i was like when did you have time to do this your dad was literally just threatening your boyfriend with a gun but wasn't she like outside at one point like in a bathing suit and then he got all like her dad got like all like turned on and then had to have sex with his wife like yeah what was that? I couldn't <laughs> fucking tell you. Because they didn't go back to it or acknowledge it or expand on it. It was just like, okay, I guess that happened. There's like um, a lingering thread of sexual repression amongst all of them. Like, especially during the, the can-can scene in Paris where he's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable, but I can't look away. And I'm licking my lips. And I'm like, I wonder what Paul, uh, I wonder what um, Patrick Wilson could have done with this role. But like the rest of it, I was like, okay, but what are you saying about this what is this commenting on about sexual relationships between husband and wives in the 40s what where are they going with it oh absolutely nowhere okay sure yeah okay well anyway do you have anything else that you would like to add to the performance specifically before we move on no (laughs) no. (laughs) i would like to not ever think about this movie ever again oh my god yeah this yeah that if you really don't like someone just you make them watch that. Yeah. Yeah, this movie. Okay, um, you basically did to me what like all my friends in college did when they were like, oh, you have to watch too many cooks on YouTube. It's so short. It's so funny. <laughs> um, what is too many cooks? Is this like a slow, painful? Oh, Kyle, to you have to watch too many cooks on YouTube. It's like so short. It's so funny. You'll love it. Okay. I well, there you go. Uh, listeners, check it out. Or maybe don't. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm being led into here. Um, okay, so let's talk about our winner, Kathy Bates, for the movie Misery. So this was her first um, nomination and her only Oscar win, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, she obviously, she was, she was in her 40s whenever she got this role and won this Oscar. And then uh, in the um, 90s, she was, she was nominated for About Schmidt. She was nominated for a political movie as well uh, in the late 90s. And then she was recently nominated for that football movie, which I still haven't seen because the subject matter does not interest mm-hmm. me. But the point is, is that she went from lead to like the more supporting category because, again, roles for women, yep. uh, but also plus size women as well. Uh, I'm sure there's probably not really a ton of them in Hollywood, right? But Kathy Bates, I always really loved because she was kind of like the... I don't want to say the Melissa McCarthy of like the eighties or the nineties or something like that, but it's sort of like every generation, they always have like a normal, like a normal woman who is a huge star. And, um, uh, Olivia Coleman, for example, or Melissa McCarthy, where it's like, they are a normal body weight and they're extremely talented. And it's like, uh, Kathy Bates was sort of like this of the nineties, or at least that's how I remember her. And, in the movie Misery, you know, this is a novel by Stephen King. She plays the iconic Annie Wilkes, who is on many 
many like uh, villains, uh, top villains of all time in movies lists. I think she's usually in the top 20, top 10, you know, Um, the famous line, like, I'm your number one fan. I'm your number one fan. You know, I don't really think that we really need to get too much into what this movie's about because I feel like most people are familiar with it. But basically, uh, Paul Sheldon is a famous author who is stalked by Annie Wilkes and he writes the story of this woman called Misery. And, um, you know, he gets into a car accident that she orchestrated that accident, right? By putting a block in the road. I don't, I, that's what I thought the whole time, but it didn't seem like the movie was uh, alluding to that. It just seemed like she happened to be there at the time. I think it's more interesting if she did, but I don't know. I didn't, I don't remember it in the text. I don't, yeah, I don't remember it either, but you know, basically she saves him if you will and then traps him a la it's almost like whatever happened to baby jane almost where yeah. uh she's the nurse and she will not let him leave and he's trapped there and then he like you know wackiness ensues we, we've all seen the movie and then eventually she breaks his ankle so that he can't leave um so this was written by stephen king and uh you know stephen king at this point loved the way that um the director handled um uh, Stand By Me, mm-hmm. was really looking forward to seeing how this movie would come out and uh, was so obsessed with how Kathy Bates uh, brought Annie Wilkes to life. Um, this was Kathy... So Kathy Bates winning this Oscar, she was the first actress to win for a horror thriller movie. And then the second was um, uh, Jodie Foster for Silence of the, Lamb. the Silence of the Lambs, which I feel like is the following year. Um this role was originally offered to Bette Midler <laughs> and she regrets take, she regrets not taking it. Um, Roseanne and Rose, Roseanne Barr and uh, Rosie O'Donnell were uh, considered for this role as well. And um, this is Stephen King's favorite written character. And uh, it's interesting because uh, Jack Nicholson was offered the role that James Caan or Paul Sheldon, uh, that James Caan was playing uh, and Jack Nicholson turned it down because he had previously done a Stephen King book for The Shining and he hated his experience with Stanley Kubrick. Not that he directed this movie, but he's like, I've done Stephen King's subject matter before. I don't want to do it again. So he turned it down and then James Caan took the role. But it's interesting because James Caan actually turned down the lead role for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which Jack Nicholson won his Oscar for. So they did a little bit of a little bit of a switch there there is history in this page there is history and uh okay so kathy bates is crazy and deranged and of course they had a second wind resurrection in american horror story she obviously shines in this category mm-hmm. um i have seen this movie a few times and what do you think about this performance so this was another one that was like on my list for years and i just needed a reason and a headspace to watch it and holy fuck what have i been doing with my life um it was <laughs> it's it's a it's a honest to god revelation i just like obviously annie wilkes is like known for like the breaking of the ankles and like the crazy screaming and like the close-up to the face with the lightning i just hit the microphone i'm sorry but like what i was really <laughs> impressed by or like most moved by was like just like she can like elicit so much from a single line that you would not expect like the the pig scene where she like introduces him to misery the pig it's like it's genuinely pathetic and it's so creepy but it's also just so fucking funny 
and like mm-hmm. she can just do that effortlessly obviously not effortlessly because like it takes a lot to like land that tightrope walk but those were the mo- it wasn't like even like the crazier moments it was like the subtler moments that held more than a single thing that just kept happening i agree with you because she there's a lot of depth to the character itself because of course you could sort of do that one note insane person Mm -hmm. right but like you're saying whenever she brings in the sow misery and then she it's like you feel bad for her kind of but then you also are like no like you're the villain like you're uh uh, like you're the person that we're supposed to hate Mm -hmm. but then she just kind of has these like sad moments where she would just be like i stand outside your cabin at night and i see your light on wondering what you're doing and you're just like oh god like you're just this lonely sad woman yeah but you're also a fucking lunatic and you're right it's like she'll say something she'll just say the line but you can understand the line in like two or three sort of different ways because it's just like, you're like, oh, well, that was really fucked up. But you're like, but you're also kind of a sad person who's lonely and clearly doesn't know how to interact with people. And you obviously have, like, a lot of mental health issues as well. Like, there's a lot of layers I've to never it. really understood the term layered performance until this role. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I think that one thing that I thought for me was just really funny was whenever she notices that her penguin is faced the wrong Mm -hmm. way, because clearly she has some sort of an OCD and she's like, "Um, Paul, you know, I know that you've been getting out and I I noticed that the penguin was faced the wrong way. And she didn't need anything other than that one little thing to, to notify her that he had gotten out because I have really bad OCD. So I actually also like, I, whenever I think of this movie, I'm not like, I don't think about the the accident. I don't think about the ankle breaking. I always think about the penguin facing the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Cause that like, I am of that capacity as well. And I literally, I'm like, I'm like, absolutely. Like I understand that crazy as well. And just little tiny things about her performance that really stand out mm-hmm. for me. Not just the obvious, like breaking of the ankles. For yeah. It's, it's subtle. And mm-hmm. like it would really, what I love well, wait, no, most. No, just to add to what yeah. you just said, though, because you said it was subtle, because it, it, but that's, but that's what I mean. Where it's like, where we're talking about jo- Joanne Woodward Gross in that movie, where it's like, you know, her performance was subtle, but it's like with Kathy Bates, there's a way to do subtle, but still be like, wow, yeah, yeah, like Joanne Woodward's performance was like, this is subtle, but like, what you see is what you get, and like, yeah. this is like, this is subtle because there's just like so much going on under the surface that could be that could be rage that could be sympathy that could be love that could be a dread and like what i absolutely adore about this performance is she plays literally everything so earnestly there's never a moment in that movie where i thought oh she's trying to intimidate him oh that's a very good point you're right except uh <laughs> except whenever she's coming at him with like morphine needles yeah. and uh and 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 things like that but i loved whenever she would uh have those moments where she was talking about um the continuity issues with when she was a kid mm-hmm. and she would see like on screen and they were watching like a i don't know if it was a cartoon or it was some sort of a children's program and how she would not allow the movie to continue or the show to continue because the continuity and she has those tantrums and those freakouts. Yeah. And it's like, she has the 
look on her face that she adopts whenever she's having those freakouts that's very like it's very scary to watch and it's like she'll go from telling a story to being terrifying and sort of you know like a la Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. in like one second and it's like <clears throat> I don't think that Annie Wilkes gets that same level of respect that maybe Hannibal Lecter would get you know what I yeah. mean and it's like she should because there's because I think Hannibal Lecter had 20 minutes of screen time for Silence of the Lambs and won an Oscar and like this movie like she's in the movie the whole time oh it's her movie and, like Paul is barely exactly. the fact that we don't know who he is before the crash he's like he could be literally anyone yeah absolutely so I thought this was very uh interesting in the book um you know Kathy Bates like Annie Wilkes is supposed to be his substance addiction personified um because it's trapping him and killing him and they explore those themes a lot more like in the novel and honestly whenever you hear those kinds of things with older movies you're like I feel like that would have made the movie like even more interesting Mm, yeah um but it's just a subject matter that like they were tiptoeing around because they couldn't get it past the censors at the time probably i mean you know who knows but um when she has the that those moments of um self realization i suppose Mm -hmm. whenever she realizes that he's going to heal he's going to get better the book is going to be done she has no purpose anymore Mm. and then she starts to be like oh i love you paul but i know that you don't love me back and you know i'm not the movie star type yeah um yeah, and then she just switches into, I have this gun that I think about using sometimes. And you're like, oh my god. Like, like that's horrifying, but that's so funny. And, like, the delivery of yeah. it is just pitch perfect. Yeah. I quote Cockadoody and You Dirty Bird all the time. <laughs> Whenever somebody does something so bad, I'm like, You Dirty Bird. Like, I... Anyway, this is... It's an iconic character, an iconic role, mm-hmm. and uh, Kathy Bates at at her finest and also um uh she is also amazing in american horror story coven as uh, madame delphine de Delore. delphine yeah that's her name yeah there i'm glad that you know this better than i do <laughs> it's the only season that i've ever actually finished and getting to the end i'm like i've made a horrible mistake oh i love that season from beginning to i rewatched it but i know what you mean i usually with american horror story i get about three episodes yeah. in and then i'm like i don't like this <laughs> yep <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. I, this is for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway, so I, it's just, she was extremely the right choice, extremely iconic character, extremely layered performance. It was, I watched this movie before, I'll definitely watch it again, mm-hmm. and um, just uh, absolutely iconic. Is there anything else that you would like to add to her performance before we select a winner? Um. Oh, yeah, that's not how you do CPR at the beginning it's like two compressions and three breaths i'm like hon you're a nurse bloody breaths <laughs> yeah bloody bloody like they're gonna need to get an aids test yeah, after that one very sure. bad yeah very i bad. do have like a um, question for you because you've been doing this podcast okay. for a while i'm curious when do you think in the culture movies started to become oscar bait because i don't think anyone made this movie being like kathy's gonna win really that would go down to um harvey weinstein Uh, i think that once he started changing the game of campaigning and especially for women hmm. i mean the most uh his most celebrated uh campaign was when gwyneth paltrow won for shakespeare in love over Kate blanchett for elizabeth uh or even um oh god the last station 
uh, I cannot remember her name off the top of my head, but she's Brazilian and she's brilliant in the movie. And uh, the fact that Gwyneth Paltrow won, uh, AKA the daughter of Blythe Danner, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you know what's so funny with Blythe Danner is I do not think of Blythe Danner as, even though she had a full-on acting <laughs> career before Gwyneth Paltrow, I only think of Blythe Danner coming into this world at 50-60 just to create Gwyneth Paltrow. Like, that's the only way that I think of Blythe Danner. Oh I don't even God. think of her as Will's mom and Will and Grace. I only think of her as just showing up in this earth fully formed under a moist stone to create <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. That's Blythe Danner to me. But anyway, I digress. I think that the Oscar bait, it really started with from this podcast, I would say, with Harvey Weinstein, because as you know, we, I just mentioned previously, the roles for women in movies uh, that were compelling and interesting and great, there usually weren't five. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, of the not, there's usually like one or two, not five. Yeah, this was a good year. I mean, four, but... Yeah, I would say, I agree with that <laughs> Um, But okay, so you are my guest, so please uh, select who you think that the Oscars should have gone to. Oh, so glad you asked. I think the Oscars should have gone to... It's really no contest. Like, Kathy Bates clears it. Like, if you want to talk about, like, being on another level, that is on another fucking level. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, do you have anything else that you would like to expand on about, like, why, or anything that you loved uh, specifically? Uh, I I don't know what else to say. Like, the subtlety, the naturalism to it, everything just, like, didn't feel like acting. It was like, oh, this is, like, a real woman who exists, which, like, it was, like... Yeah, I'm gonna be everything. Everything. Okay, that's beautiful. Okay, so um, I think that the Oscar should have gone to. <laughs> Joanne Woodward. I'm joking. Kathy Bates. Oh my God, of course. <laughs> like, obviously, it's Kathy Bates. I mean, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. The thing is, is that uh, it's iconic. She's celebrated. A, I always love a villain. I always love a thriller, horror kind of role. Um, and I just feel like she does not get the same sort of credit that like Silence of the Lambs gets, even though this is uh, probably an even more expanded performance and an expanded character compared to like Hannibal Lecter, for example. Um, Horror and thriller is always like one of my favorite genres. And um, I always love uh, watching these types of movies, especially whenever we're talking about Academy Awards. So horror and Academy Awards and she won. So this is great. If I can offer this, I'm sorry to your point. Um, Like, yes, Hannibal Lecter gets more, uh, more uh, renown, but that's in Silence of the Lambs. The second Hannibal Lecter was given the screen time that Kathy Bates has in Misery, he becomes a much less compelling character. So the fact that she was able to do that with the length puts her over the edge for me. That is very true. You're right. But I mean, she felt like a living, breathing character Mm -hmm. and this movie exploded her star power into the stratosphere. And I think that she uh, is... Uh, amazing and I, I love I love seeing Kathy Bates in horror I think that's where she really really shines either that or as the unsinkable Molly Brown in Titanic where she's the sassy sheriff um, but no obviously it's it's Kathy Bates I think for me a close second honestly was Julia Roberts because I always loved Julia Roberts being Julia Roberts yeah. so if she had won for this I'm not gonna lie I wouldn't be terribly upset about it but yes Kathy Bates in Misery was was the choice yeah um, 
Okay. Well, thank you so much, Brenda DeSouza, for being a guest on this podcast. Where can people find you on social media? Thank you so much for having me. I am on Instagram and Twitter at DeSouza, D-A-S-O-U-Z-I-E. You can listen to my podcast, Shredded the Post Breakup Podcast, wherever you purchase your fine podcast, probably wherever you're listening to this one right now. And once things open up again, you can find me doing stand-up comedy at dive bars all over Toronto and the greater Toronto area. I will see you there. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. We'll see you next time. Bye. Goodbye.